none of us like thinking about death. In fact, I've been to funerals where everything is talked about except that which is staring us right in the face. That someone has died. And we're all going to end up there too. I mean, why would anybody want to talk about death? It's not exactly easy or casual dinner conversation. And it's true that some people out there have an unnatural fascination with it. But that's really just another way of avoiding the topic. To live in this world is to be living under the threat of death. Entropy rules. Death and decay are all around us. They are inescapable. And still we have legends about finding the fountain of youth. That somehow we will overcome death if we could just keep drinking something. Or maybe even science fiction dreams of human technology overcoming the pervasiveness of death. And yet our best and our brightest in the last two years have not been able to overcome the mutation of a cold virus. That is how fragile our lives really are. Several years ago, I read about a fad of cryogenesis. That is, there are people who are paying to have their bodies, or maybe just their heads, frozen, so that once, um, or after they die, that one day, scientists will be able to overcome death, resuscitate them, and so that they can live forever. Satan always has his counterfeits. He always rips off the gospel. It's just another way of trying to reach eternal life and having a form of resurrection. To be fair, death is our great and final enemy. And is far stronger than any of us. And in our moments of honesty, we all know this. We know that we simply do not stand a chance. Now, this will make three weeks in a row where I'm quoting a song to you. But this idea is summarized well by the band Mumford & Sons where they sing this. Death is just so full, and man so small. Death is just so full, and man so small. Death is full, it consumes us, and it is yet never filled. It takes and it takes and it takes, and we are so small, we cannot overcome it. And so how do we deal with this? Most of us just choose not to think about it, to avoid the topic, even up to our final moments. And I fear that it's the lack of being able to face death and its reality and where we are heading that has led to many of the irrational fears that have plagued this world over the last two years and has led to so many bad decisions. You live in a dangerous world. Your life hangs by a string. And at the appointed time, God will say your time is up. And there's nothing you can do to lengthen those days. That does not negate that you have personal responsibilities. That does not negate agency. But we often have far too high a view of our own strength. The last couple of messages in Ecclesiastes have seen a focus on enjoying the goodness of creation, of God's world. But now we swing back to that pendulum of the problem of vanity. And that is epitomized by death. Chapter 7 here, we see the intersection of of death and wisdom. And death here represents the brokenness and the cursed nature of this world. How do you and I live wisely in such a world? What are the benefits and limits of of wisdom in such a world? The answer Solomon gives us, and the one we must hear, is that to live well, we must face death head on. We must allow it to teach us, to inform us and direct how we live. 
This is not some morbid navel-gazing. This is not living in fear of death, but a call, as David Gibson puts it, to live our lives backward. And it starts with seeing the end, seeing where we are all going to end up, and working our way back to today. So what can death teach us? That's what we see in the first six verses here of Ecclesiastes 7. The opening verse gives us this underlying theme that death is a teacher. That even as our great enemy, even as the pinnacle of death, in, or of evil in this world, it can be used for good. Death exists for a purpose. And it can be used for good. And we see the goodness of death, or how it can be used for good, in the death of Christ. That even in the greatest evil that ever happened, the murdering of the Son of God, the greatest good came about. The existence of death, likewise, can bring good because it teaches us. A brush with death, a near-death experience, often brings clarity of thought to our thinking. It helps us to see what is really valuable and what is not. And so Solomon begins this section with some Proverbs. He says, A good name is more precious than ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. What does, it, what does that mean? Why is the day of death better than the day of birth? Is Solomon saying that death is to be preferred over living? No, not at all. But what he means by the day of death is better than the day of birth is that the day of death teaches us. Birthdays are joyous occasions. There's nothing wrong with that, but the certainty of death gives us instruction in a way that birthdays do not. And one of the chief things it teaches us is the importance of character. It is better to have a good name than that you have precious or expensive ointment. It is better that you have good character than that you become wealthy. Do not cut corners. Do not cheat to get what you want. How will you be remembered? How will God judge you on those final days? That is the question. Death is a judgment for our sin. And it teaches us that some things just aren't worth it. And some things are. A good name is better than precious ointment. And as Solomon continues, he says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He says, If you have a choice to go to a party, like a wedding, or to a funeral, you should pick the funeral. Does that make any sense to you? I mean, how morbid is this Solomon guy? But what he's getting at is what one of my seminary professors said to us in class once. He said, I would rather preach a funeral than a wedding. Why? Why? Everybody's having a good time at a wedding. It's a happy occasion, but there's no seriousness of thought. At a funeral, the house of mourning, we are given a glimpse into our future. And people have to wrestle with the big questions of life. And so many a preacher would rather preach a funeral than a wedding, even though they don't want to see people die. Death brings with it a soberness to our thinking. And so Solomon continues, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face the heart is made glad. And the heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. For this reason, sorrow is better than laughter and sadness better than laughter because fools are obsessed with laughing it off. Fools are obsessed with avoiding the reality of this cursed world. But that reality is ever chasing after us. And this foolishness manifests itself in many ways as Solomon continues. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise man than to hear the song of fools. 
For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is vanity. The song of fools, the laughter of fools is like twigs crackling underneath a pot. Poof, it's flames consumed by the fire and gone. It's just kindling. Our society's top 40 charts is full of songs of fools. Not necessarily all of them. We live in God's world, and even unbelievers will capture truth about God's world. But many of our songs are foolish songs. I like to talk about the lyrics of songs. That's why I've quoted so many uh, to you. I like to see what these people actually think, what they believe, what they are putting forward as good and beautiful and worthy of praise. I find that most people don't really listen to the lyrics they're consuming. What a song declares in words, they are praising and giving their version of reality. If you want to see how far gone a society is, look at their art. Is it wise or is it utter insanity? I'll let you judge by our pop songs as to whether there is content there of beauty and truth or whether it is just a song of fool. And what do, and who do foolish songs appeal to? Fools. Foolish songs appear, appeal to fools. If you watch a comedy sometimes, the laughter of fools, you realize how utterly stupid they are. Comedy used to require that you would be quick of wit. That you had an incisive mind that could turn a phrase and make something funny. And yet today, the goal of getting people to laugh or the way to get people to laugh is to be as stupid as possible. Fools. And so death teaches us that we are sinners. And folly is bound up inside of us. And this is one of those key points we have to hear repeated throughout scripture. That we need correction. That we should look for it. We should desire it and we should receive it. Better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise man than to hear the song of fools. I mean, how many of us actually want to be rebuked and corrected? This is the lie of our day. This is the gospel. Brother and sister, this is the false gospel of our day. We are told in countless different ways that to question someone, to try to correct them, to point them towards truth, especially biblical truth, is unloving. What you need is to surround yourself only with people who will affirm your decisions because you are God and no one has the right to question you. This is the path that has destroyed so many people's lives. This is the path that has destroyed so many marriages that we refuse correction and instruction. Do not go that way. It is death. It is eternal destruction. Death is the consequence for sin and foolishness. And it reminds us that we need correction. And we need it often. As Solomon continues here in verses 7 through 12, we see that wisdom, therefore, is worth pursuing. Wisdom is worth it. The reality of death, if we look it right in the eye, pushes us towards our need of wisdom. Ecclesiastes is, after all, a part of the wisdom literature about living well in this world as it is, broken, fallen, and cursed. And as you consider this world as it is, both in its goodness and in all of the evil in it, we are called to wisdom. And wisdom begins with the fear 
of the Lord. He alone is the source of wisdom. And so this section starts with a confrontation of evil and wisdom. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Wisdom looks at the evil of this world, and it sees it for what it is. It does not explain it away. It does not offer some cockamamie lie that we can bring about our own utopia. But as the wise look at evil and begin to see it as God sees it, it can drive them into utter madness. If you were to let the evil of this world fully sit upon you, you would despair and never leave your house. And so death and evil teach the wise man that the end is better than the beginning. And therefore, we should be patient people. We are often quick to start projects, but slow to finish them. We drop them. The wise man knows that we need to patiently endure and finish what we have started, that the end is better than the beginning. Wisdom knows the importance of sticking to it and persevering, and that patience is required. And this can be said of the entire story of creation, that the new creation, the end, will be greater than the beginning. Because in the end, all things are being remade by the power and the strength of Christ. And that you and I, as fallen humans, will be redeemed in Christ, glorified, and will be unable to sin. Adam was sinless, but able to sin. We will be sinless, but unable to sin. And so the end will be greater than the beginning. And so the madness of the wise calls us to patience. For the end will be greater and in patience, wisdom looks to death and sees that being an angry person isn't worth it. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. If death teaches us anything, it may be that we get bent out of shape over the wrong things. I mean, if I say something slightly theologically incorrect as a pastor, it will barely go noticed. No one will get worked up and out of shape. But I'll tell you what will get your email box filled with corrections. You touch somebody's entertainment. You touch something outside of the church they really love. And boy, woo, does it fill up with anger. You learn a lot about somebody by what they get angry about. This is the baseline of wisdom, the baseline of personal holiness. We must not be angered easily or triggered by whatever it is that disagrees with you. The petulant, whiny, immature mobs of our day that are angry at everything are not only tiresome and self-righteous, but they act like little children and fools. And we can easily become that. Anger is generally not your friend. No one gets to their deathbed one day and say, Hey, bring my kids in here. I'd really like to yell at them one more time. Man, I really wish before I died I could put my spouse in his or her place just one more time. Death teaches you that anger is often not worth it. Death and wisdom then also teach us to not idolize the past. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. It is foolish to long for the good old days, the glory days. Whether that be some idealized time in your personal past or in society's past. 
Foolishness will tempt us to not live in the now, to not make plans for the future, to not work towards the future and take the real opportunities that are there because we have whitewashed some version of our past lives thinking that everything was perfect back then. It wasn't. There is no utopia in the past and there is no utopia in the future until Jesus comes back. Wisdom recognizes that we can waste our lives looking back instead of factoring in the coming of our deaths by looking forward. And so death and wisdom teach us to trust God who directs the seasons of our lives. Ecclesiastes 3. There's a season for everything and it is appointed by God. Death and wisdom teach us to trust God so that we do not feed our discontentment by longing for what is gone. And so we are called to pursue wisdom because it guides us, it instructs us, and it teaches us to reckon with death, to factor it in. Solomon continues, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom is like living in the daylight. It is like having light in a room so that you can see where you are going and who, this, who you truly are and what this world truly is. It provides real protection in a fallen world and helps to preserve our lives. But this is not the whole story. There are also limits to our wisdom and to our righteousness. That's the theme of verses 15 through 24. Life is not simple in a fallen world. It is not as if wisdom will deliver you from all evil. Wisdom knows its own limitations. In scripture, foolishness and wickedness come together. Being a fool is not lacking intellectual ability. It is tied to having a wicked heart and mind. Similarly, righteousness and wisdom are intimately linked. If you are a wise man, you will be bent towards righteousness. If you are a righteous man, you will be bent towards wisdom. And Solomon warns in this section of the dangers of being overly righteous and wise. He says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. As you consider death and the benefits of wisdom, know this world is both broken and cursed. Wisdom does not have the ability to prevent you from dying. It can prolong your life, but it will not prevent you from dying. Even wisdom is not stronger than death. And so the wise and the righteous sometimes perish before their time. But that is no endorsement of folliness or folly and wickedness. Extreme folly and evil will likely cut your life short. Whether that be through things like AIDS or drugs or violence and murder, your life will likely be cut short if you become excessively wicked. Don't be such a fool. And yet Solomon warns that men can also take a good thing like wisdom and righteousness, and we can even pervert that. That is what he means here by being overly righteous. It is not as if Solomon is saying here, find the perfect middle ground between being righteous and wicked. Just a little bit of righteousness and just a little bit of wickedness. That's not what he's getting at. He warns here that the self-righteous person falls into things like legalism. 
and legalism actually works against you. There's no advantage in it, for it too is a rejection of God, because it rejects the good gifts that God has given him and takes away the only joys that you can really have in this life. But the man of God fears the Lord, and he will avoid both legalism and libertinism, that is, doing whatever it is you want. Wisdom and righteousness cannot solve the problems of sin and death. And wisdom knows this, and so he turns to the Lord. Things get even further complicated as we factor in to death and wisdom why death is in the world in the first place. Sin. Verses 20 through 20, or 20 and 25 through 29 give us the bad news that sin is pervasive. It infects all of us. Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Let me read that again. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Even the wise sin. Even the righteous sin. It is the ever-present reality of the human race. And it infects all that we do. Then again in verses 25 through 29. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out their own schemes. This is one of those passages that could very, very easily be taken out of context. Solomon says that in the search for an upright person, he has not found a single woman who could be described that way. Not even one. And moreover, he has seen the desolation caused by crooked women and how they can easily ensnare men. Many a man has fallen for a pretty face, but that woman has an evil and wicked heart. Women can exert an incredibly negative influence on men. The same is also true in a different direction for men upon women, but that is not the object of this text. The old saying is true, hell hath no fury. Like a woman scorned. Solomon says, There is a great evil I have seen, and that is a woman who ensnares a man. But this is his search. He says, His search. You look at Solomon's life and the many evil wives he had, and the evil women often attracted towards power. And he says, Within his own spheres, he has not found a single wise and upright woman. And we need to be clear here, he's speaking of his search. We have in Scripture, over and over again, examples of righteous women. Proverbs 31, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and so many more we could list from Scripture. Even here at CBC, we have many examples of godly, upright women. It is not saying there are no righteous women at all. And if you want to think that Solomon is somehow favoring men over women, he says in his search, O men, so you don't get too full of yourselves, he found one in a thousand. So I didn't find any women, but the men didn't do a whole lot better. The real point here is that sin and folly are pervasive in both men and women. It is the common denominator. Everything we do is impacted by our sin. And so sin and death are intimately linked 
perhaps the lesson teaches or that lesson death teaches us the most is the cost of our sin for the wages of sin is death and that is a bleak picture for we have all sinned so that leads us to our final lesson and the final lesson is is you need someone stronger than sin you need someone stronger than death Staring at death is not fun, and that's why we avoid it. None of us want to be reminded of our smallness or the fullness of death. Yet that is the point. The final lesson is death the teacher is really an evangelist. It says you need someone stronger than you. You need a savior, and that savior must be God Almighty. That is the heart of the story. Man's rebellion leads to death, and only God can overcome death. Look very closely at verses 13 through 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Consider this. Your good days are a blessing from God. Your bad days, even your really bad days, come from his hand. And so you are called to rejoice in the good days, see his goodness, and bless him for that. But you are also called to see in those bad days your need for God. The bad days instruct us. That is the point of verse 13. What is the work of God we are to consider? That he has bent this world. He made it crooked. Go back to Genesis 3. It was not sin that made the world crooked. It was not death that made the world crooked. They are not all-powerful. They do not rule the universe. But in response to sin, it was God who cursed the man. It was God who cursed the woman. It was God who cursed the serpent. And it was God who cursed the ground. And that was his righteous judgment. And we are so prone to try to straighten our lives, to straighten our communities, our cultures, and our families by our own strength. But it is as if God has taken a giant steel beam, and he has bent it. And we can gather all of our strength together to try to make that straight again, but you cannot and I cannot. So all these silly offers of a utopia in this life, or your best life now, or that we are the ones we've been waiting for, they are junk. God has cursed this world. It is bent by the power of his word, and only he has the power to make it straight again. Who can make straight what God has bent? The implied answer is no one but God. Consider this. God gives us both good and bad. God bends the world so that we see our need of Jesus Christ. Because death is far mightier than you. It really is so full and we really are so small. But the fullness of death is swallowed up by the death of Christ. We can flip this around. Christ is so full and death is so small. And so death screams to you. It screams to us that we need a Savior. And that Savior must be God. And that's exactly what we get in Christ. He makes our paths straight. He unbends this world. He is making all things new. He is overthrowing death by dying. He cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. 
Death is a great teacher and evangelist because it shows us the grave, which makes us have to go to the empty tomb. Death is overthrown by the God-man, Jesus Christ. So consider death. Do not ignore it. Stare it right in the face and don't even flinch. Why? Because the mystery, because the mystery of ages past is revealed to us in the death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has overcome our great enemy. And so we need not fear death. We can look at it with a boldness, for Christ has overthrown death by dying. Let's pray.